The Tunisian uprising in 2011 took place under the slogans of dignity, work, liberation, liberty, and uh, participation or citizenship. But I think the most important word in that, probably the, the most difficult to, ex uh, to identify, but full of meaning, was the word dignity, karama. Tunisia and Egypt were the only two countries of the, uh, of the uh, Arab Spring who underwent what might one might call a short track uh, transition uh, away from the authoritarian, authoritarian ruler uh, into the setting up of a new government. And these are the two that are uh, one has had, as you've heard, a constitution and the other is uh, somewhat <coughs> close to it. There are a number of characteristics uh, that separate these two states from the other countries that are undergoing or have undergone uh, the Arab Spring uh, uprising. One is, of course, that they had an old ruler uh, who was ready to go anyhow. He didn't feel ready to go, but uh, he was at the end of his term, had to jigger with the Constitution to stay on and had an illegitimate or unappreciated successor in mind. That's the uh, structural condition. The second one was that they both had an army that did not and does not shoot at its people. The third uh, was that they had a large opposition group. In neither case did it make the revolution, but took advantage of the revolution, a large opposition group that declared that it was moderate that is, uh, the Islamic movement in both of the countries. Uh, the fourth characteristic was that it had a group of people in the government after the leader had gone who were willing to negotiate themselves out of power and provide a negotiated transition uh, toward a new order involving elections and uh, a, a constitution. Uh, and the last, the fifth characteristic was in both cases there was a commitment to the continuity of the state, not of its content, uh, not of the old order, but of the state as a structure. In other words, neither of them was a case of a collapsed state, as we've seen in some of the other countries. And I think these are important to recognize as the beginning of what the Tunisians call uh, a revolution. It is, of course, not a social revolution, as we're used to thinking of it in, in Russia or China or France and so on, but certainly a, a political revolution. In that case, I, I think it's somewhat uh, outlandish to think to expect that the Constitution would be written in six months um, uh, or even, even in a year. The last Constitution that Tunisia had was written, it took three years to write. Of course, you can say that that was a constitution that in the process of being right, written did away with the monarchy and installed a, a, uh, the principles of a republican government. But the same thing, similar thing is going on now, a constitution that does away with a presidential regime and is debating over the form of government uh, that is between presidential and uh, parliamentary. A type of, of government. As has been pointed out, there are a number of important things that have been uh, uh, decided, and uh, notably the word Sharia does not uh, appear in the Constitution, and that was a, uh, the result of an ongoing discussion among 
the various forces, uh, and particularly between the two uh, camps uh, in Tunisia today, the uh, what are called the Islamists and the, the secularists. Another one that's important in the Tunisian constitution has 27 articles uh, of great liberality devoted to the protection of, of human rights. Um, there was somewhat of a de debate that I think goes on still uh, over the source of human rights. Uh, Rashid Ghanoushi told me last week that human rights come from God uh, and therefore the word universal uh, is not used in referring to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, because it is um, uh, divinely uh, derived. Um, so the Tunisian constitution, uh, which took longer uh, than uh, had been uh, foreseen, is in its year and a half of, organ of organization, part of which the, part of that time took, uh, was taken by the constitution of a government, uh, a, a structure for the constituent assembly. The Tunisian constitution is on its way um, to a, a final form and one that is uh, debated, uh, one that, is, uh, that involves the participation, unlike the case in Egypt, uh, involves the participation of many sectors uh, of society. Um, we have a, a very important group of panelists to discuss uh, the political and the constitutional and then also the economic uh, aspects of, uh, uh, of, of the <coughs> Arab Spring in Tunisia. You'll note, by the way, that the, although the economic conditions are, are bad, um, they do not distinguish, they do not define who would have a short track, who would have a long track, who would have no track at all. Uh, in the in the Arab Spring, Qatar uh, that was uh, cited uh, hasn't had its yet, and its uh, gap is is among the greatest. We have with us uh, to begin with Alexis Arif, um, who is the uh, the analyst for the area in the Congressional Research Service, uh, and uh, um, I've seen her in a number of panels, and uh, as we discuss uh, the the Arab Spring in uh, Washington and she has a good deal of authority and understanding of the situation. Uh, we have Dr. Alaya Alani, um, who is the professor of contemporary history in the uh, Manuba University in Tunis, uh, a university that was plagued by a good deal of, um, uh, of disturbance by the Salafists soon after the, the uprising, um, and is the author of a number of, a continuing author of a number of comments and books uh, on the situation in the Arab world and has the distinction of being the only person in italics in your program. Um, and then there's Dr. Uh, Ghazi Harari, uh, who is uh, also at the uh, university, but the University of Tunis, uh, and is a, uh, a, um, a specialist on uh, constitutional uh, matters, diplomatic law, and so on. And uh, then we have Dr. Ahmed Al-Hamri, uh, who has been uh, working with the, uh, the World Bank uh, on economic affairs. And so we will go in, in that order as, as indicated in your program. Each one will take 20 minutes, which will leave us plenty of time for uh, discussion. Uh, Alexis Arias. Do you want us to come to the podium? Wherever you feel comfortable. Here? Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, 
Hi, everyone. Uh, it's really an, an enormous pleasure and privilege to be on the, a panel with with this particular group. Um, I'm going to try to keep my remarks quite quite brief because I, I'm really looking forward to what uh, my co-panelists have to say in, in getting more in-depth onto some of these issues. Um, so just uh, to sort of give a, a broad overview, I think as we enter the third year of Tunisia's political transition, it's worth remembering the euphoria that many felt in January 2011 at the time of Tunisia's you know, initial revolution. Um, but also worth remembering that almost immediately this euphoria was tempered by disputes over the shape and scope of the transition process. The elections in October 2011, widely viewed as extremely successful and relatively well-conducted, um, provided or injected momentum into a process that even in 2011 already seemed to many analysts to be slow, unwieldy, and sort of un unmanaged in some ways. Uh, and I think that now, today, uh, the challenges that Tunisians face remain largely the same as they did uh, in that initial phase. And some of them, indeed, have deepened or become more stark during that time. Sorry? Oh. <laughs> um, and that isn't to say that these challenges are insurmountable. It's just to temper sort of expectations with the reality of what we're seeing, which I don't think is necessarily something that we could have reasonably expected to, to be otherwise. These challenges include notably disputes over reform priorities. As one of the uh, questioners uh, mentioned in the first panel, um, you know, is the priority economic growth? Is it political reform and change? Is it anti-corruption? Is it social justice? Um, not to mention economic challenges and regional disparities within Tunisia that, that undoubtedly did drive a lot of the initial unrest and that continue to create instability and, and and uh, a sense among many Tunisians that the revolution has failed to deliver its, its main promises. There are differing visions among Tunisian elites and among segments of the population over the future shape of Tunisian society, and notably, as, as others have mentioned, and as, as I think we'll explore further in this panel, uh, the relationship between state, religion, and society. I would say that there's been a repeated pattern since 2011 of Tunisian elite consensus nearly breaking down or really coming to the brink of a political crisis, only to manage at, the, at what seems from the outside to be the very last minute to re-cobble together some form of consensus that then manages to re-inject momentum into the process. I think in some ways uh, we can see this as a positive dynamic that Tunisian elites are able to fundamentally to work together and to find a way forward. At the same time, I think each time this has happened, you know, starting in January, February 2011, right after the revolution, and then continuing, you know, repeatedly at, ver at repeated intervals, each time this has happened, it has perhaps deepened the level of distrust, or at least that level of distrust has deepened independently um, between segments of the Tunisian political uh, elite that is expected to manage the transition process. So I, I find that that's both an encouraging and a worrying sign or, or pattern. Often this breakdown of consensus has been over the nature and thrust of the transitional mandate. And I think that this comes down to a basic tension between whether the transitional authorities in Tunisia can be expected to focus their efforts on the day-to-day -day business of governing 
versus the important mandate of drafting a constitution that is to set the rules for the new Tunisian polity and the post-revolutionary state. So that while there has been a lot of dispute over the content of the constitution, and I think that that is necessary and healthy, um, this uh, debate over who gets to determine the content of the constitution has often overshadowed that sort of substantive debate. In other words, we're looking at a chicken and egg quandary of representative government versus rulemaking. Who gets to make the rules for a government that is supposed to be more representative of the population? And simultaneously, we see an ongoing tension over who gets to speak for the Tunisian street. Is it the leagues for the protection of the revolution, which portray themselves as protecting and standing up for the ideals of the 2011 uprising, but whose critics portray as little more than thugs or uh, illiberal uh, elements of society? Is it the trade unions who can legitimately claim to have played a major organizing role in the uprising and who can also claim to represent a large number of Tunisians, uh, but whose leadership maybe represents a, a leftist secularist strain of Tunisian politics that doesn't speak to a large segment of the population? Is it some kind of undefined nonpartisan youth that has been somewhat silent since the revolution? Or is it Salafists who can claim that they are acting on behalf of some idealized type of governance uh, rooted in past practice? Also, when can we decide when the street is no longer the best or most authoritative voice in, Tunisian, in Tunisia's transition? At what point can we say that we've reached a point where the government is representative of the people and therefore that democratic change or, or political change should come through the mechanisms of government and not from the outside in? As if the, these difficult questions and economic strains and the crisis in the Eurozone, Tunisia's largest trading partner, aren't enough, uh, Tunisia also faces a context of worrying trends in other transitional states in the region and of a deepening security crisis uh, in the region. Tunisian authorities face a difficult distinction between security threats versus legitimate channels for public grievances. The complexity of the situation in Tunisia has presented a challenge to international policymakers as well as to Tunisian authorities. Is the best response to Tunisia's political transition an, an injection of economic assistance? Is it a diplomatic focus on the political process? Is it an emphasis on law and order? Um, so on that, having raised a lot of questions and not resolved any of them, <laughs> um, I turn it over to my, to my fellow panelists. The next speaker is Dr. Alani, who is a specialist on, on Islam and uh, Salafism. Many thanks, Professor William Zartman. I uh, try to speak uh, in English, but uh, excuse me, my English is not very well. And you can find uh, the document uh, with the Maghreb Center. Uh, the title of my speech is The Role 
of the Nahda movement and the Salafist movement in the transitional phase in Tunisia 2011-2013. When Tunisia witnessed a revolution on January, the Islamists were not the backbone of this revolution. Instead, it was the revolution of the youth and the independence in general. As for another movement, it only entailed the active scene three days after former President Zin al-Abdin bin Ali had fled the country. The Salafists, on the other hand, had no noteworthy role in contributing to the Tunisian revolution for police prosecutions during Ben Ali's era made their movement scattered. The question is, how could movements which did not actively participate in the revolution become afterwards a principal actor in the political equation? In this, due to the magic and charm enchantment of the religious slogans in the subconsciences of the Arab peoples, which yearn for an Islamic rule without comprehending its details. Is this due to the effectiveness of the Muslim Brotherhood's system in Egypt and Tunisia, which is capable of embracing the fall of previous of uh, pre previous uh, governments. Is this due to the experience of Muslim Brotherhood's parties in uh, philanthropic work within civil society which granted them uh, credibility in the beginning and, that's, and thus uh, electoral appeal? The Islamists have benefited from the history of struggle for which, de which they have been known for decades and they have also benefited from the support Al Jazeera Channel provided to their activities and operations. In Tunisia, the Nahda movement developed its political discourse so quickly that it seemed unnatural. Thus, there was confusion in the Islamists' description of the transitional period as for the Salafists in Tunisia, they were coat of guard when the revolution occurred. So they tried to inflate their presence and they resorted to bringing Middle Eastern pressures in the hope to expand their base. Their meetings in the beginning of the revolution were in fact focused on the application of al-Sharia and bestowing ethics and morals on the political scene. What role did the Islamists and Salafists play in the transitional period? What is the future of the political process in Tunisia during the year 2013? The first, the role of another movement in the transitional period. Another movement developed its political discourse after the revolution and before the constituent assembly elections on 23 October 2011, very rapidly. The abnormally fast pace 
of this development quickly resulted in the phenomenon of the so-called double discourse or the widening gap between rhetoric and practice. However, another movement managed to get through the first phase of the elections, gaining about 42% of the vote and taking advantage of its history of struggle, the strength of its apparatus that had been working in secret, and its financial strength that is obtained from some well-known parties. Another movement decided to enter into a coalition with two liberal parties, one of which is accused to be partially, partially the offspring of another movement. Then it formed a government where ministries of sovereignty, economy, and education were all its. Another sought to issue a mini-constitution that gives the prime minister more powers than the president. This was, seen be, uh, this was seen by some as the beginning of the implementation of a parliamentarian regime before being decided open by the next constitution. Another government was formed in December 2011, and it was made of more than 60 ministers and secretaries of state. This was considered the beginning of Nahda's judgment errors, and this large government was not able to achieve acceptable amounts of economic and security stability. The first round of Criticism the government, Troika, consisting of Nahda, Congress for the Republic Party, and Democratic Forum for Labor and Liberties, name, named Atakatul Party, was subjected to was because the government was being ruled from outside, that is, ruled by Nahda, Ghanoushi was thought to have appointed most ministers. Since the, since the inception of its operation, the government's relationship with the opposition has been almost confrontational while it was an intimate one before the revolution. This is due to the opposition's conviction that another movement is working to change the pattern of society from a modernist to a conservative society. The skepticism of liberal and leftist opposition about Nahda's faith in democracy and civil state has been reinforced by the mar remarkable closeness between Nahda and the Salafist movement and the Salafist movements, not to mention the re repetitive Salafist attacks on politician, politicians and uh, intellectual which went on without the government's intervention to deter such practices. The opposition considered that the role of another movement in the transitional was negative. The opposition also ar argued that another harmed the neutrality of management and gave a negative image to the public opinion when it refused at its ninth conference party held in July 2000, 
12, the separation between Nahda's religious and political heights. Some researchers criticize the label the movement itself, a Nahda party, for it implies that it is both a party and movement at the same time. It is a party for those who want to engage in politics and a, mov a movement of those who want to engage in religious advocacy. This mix was actually intentional according to some researchers in order for another to bring the largest number of supporters. The government of Hamad Ishbeli, December 2011 and February 2012, has not lasted long, for it has been weakened by the workers sitting, the strikers and attacks of Salafists and a wave of increased prices that Tunisians have not managed to cope with. Performance on the security portfolio has not been satisfactory as physical liquidation has become a future of the transitional phase. It seemed that another movement was working on isolating its opponent illegally. In fact, another made sure to introduce a draft law, law on the immunization of the revolution and insist, insisted to maintain the leagues for the protection of the revolution. These leagues, which are known for their closeness to another, are accused by many analysts and political actors that it could be behind the killing of union activist Lotfi Nakal, who was affiliated with the call of Tunisia party founded by previous Prime Minister Bejikaid Sibsi. As for the incident which terrified Nahda movement, it was the murder of the political and human rights activists Shukri Belaid on February 6, 2013, in broad day, uh, daylight and a few meters away from the police station. <coughs> Hundreds of thousands of people were present, present at the funeral to express their rejection of political assassination and condemn weak security performance of the government. Prime Minister Hamad Ishbeli was therefore compelled to announce a new political initiative to absorb the implications of this incident and announced his desire to form a technocratic government which does not belong to any party. This was viewed and uh, implicit admission a failed government which he was heading. Another movement did not accept uh, the initiative of its Secretary General and South, South to abort it by uh, whether means necessary. Another forced Jbali to resign because it knows that a temporary exit, exit from the government could possibly mean a permanent absence from the government. Nahda suggested instead a government that is made of politic politicians and technocrats headed by Minister of Interior Ali Laraid. The second chapter, the role of the Salafist movement in the transitional phase. 
the Salafist movement did not participate in the Tunisian revolution. It is well known that the Salafist movement is divided into a reformist movement and a Salafist jihadist movement. Salafism has evolved in the countries of the Arab Spring from a movement that was apolitical to a uh, politicized one. The relationship between Inada and the Salafist jihadist movement went through two phases. The phases that preceded the U.S. embassy incident on September uh, 14, 2012, during this phase, the relationship was a fable. The phase passed the U.S. embassy incident. During this phase, the relationship was semi-conflictual but did not reach a breakup. Another repeatedly said it would open a dialogue with the Salafists, but in vain. This is one of the reasons of the frustration. Another opponents believe that the lenience that prevail the relationship between another and the Salafists aims at utilizing the electoral card of the Salafists in the upcoming elections. The Salafists can serve another via voting or in terms of pressure on its opponents. After the U.S. embassy incident and the arrest of hundreds of Salafists, another was forced, according to its critics, to use the leagues for the protection of the revolution, a security organization operating like the militias. The vast majority of politic political parties and all major national organizations called for the dissolution of these leagues, which are accused, accused of involvement in the murder of an official of the opposition party in the call of Tunisian party, the party of former Prime Minister Mejikaid The Salafist movement was marked by an experienced expansionist attitude through the intensification of associations and parties and having benefited from the political power, powers lenience towards them. There are tens on, uh, of Salafist associations operating in the framework of the expanded Islamic scene, notably supporter of Sharia, or Ansar al-Sharia, and three Salafist parties, as well as another party that belongs to the stream of radical Islam, namely Hizb al-Tahrir. The Salafists generally represent a protective belt of another movement, and scientific Salafism is considered in close alliance with another. As for the jihadist Salafism, there are hit and run cases with another, but there is no breakup between them. Abu Iyad repeatedly says that he deals with another movement, but he does not deal with the government in it, including secular figures. How is the role of the Salafists in the transnational phase determined? First, role of raising 
awareness among the population. Second, role of breaking up another either through electoral alliance or electoral coordination. Third, role of applying pressure in order to apply the role of Sharia and establish an Islamic state in a, Salaf in a Salafist mode. Fourth, political role through the establishment of a parliamentary bloc in the upcoming elections. Salafists establish their popular base in poor neighborhoods and generally marginalized areas. They aim at playing a political role at the internal and external levels. At the domestic level, for the scientific Salafists, the role consists of supporting movement that call for the application of Sharia and Islamization of all laws, including the personal status code and the coalition with the factions adjacent to the Salafist ideology. The jihadist Salafist, in addition to what has been previously mentioned, refuses to give, to give up running and employing mosques, mosques that are under their control. Uh, note that the Salafists in Tunisia dominate approximately 100 mosques out of the country's total uh, 5,000 uh, mosques. The Salafist jihadists oppose the government's action in the arrest and detention of jihadists who have taken, taken up arms against the authority as it happened in the incident of Bir Ali bin Khalifa and others. At the external level, supporters the activities of Salafist jihadists in Syria, Mali, and even participate in their movements and to denounce all countries fighting alongside the French in Mali. The Salafist jihadist movement deems the Palestinian cause as a central issue. It is on the side of Hamas and Islamic Jihad and, uh, and at odds with Fatah, the jihadist movement considers itself concerned with jihad outside Tunisia and not within the country. It uh, therefore supports and cooperates with jihadist movement outside the country, such as Mali, Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq, but it has recently al altered its position while its leaders have requested the return of Tunisian jihadists jihadists who are abroad. In this context, the recent call by jihadist Salafist movement leader Abu Iyad for the return of Tunisian jihadists abroad to strengthen jihadists' role at home. Many analysts consider this propaganda. The third, the latest the chapter, the prospects of the political process in Tunisia after assassi the assassination Shukri Belaid. The Jbali government tried to absorb popular anger following the assassination of left-wing political activist Shukri Belaid through the initiative of Prime Minister Hamadi Jbali, who suggested the formation of a technocratic government. There was fear of another attempt to abort Jbali's initiative and impose in a, a, mixed government, a mixed government. This exactly was happened 
The liberals and lefties and social democrats have expressed reservation about the mixed government's proposal. Another movement was divided into supporters and opponents of Jbali's proposal, but the majority opposed it under the influence of Ghanoushi. Abdel Fattah Muru, number two in the, in the Nahda movement, strongly criticized Ghanoushi, reconciled, uh, re uh, reconciled with him. What Muru said about Ghanoushi in the French magazine Marian on February, he led emphasis on three issues. Ghanoushi has to leave in Nahda party. Second, another has to step down from power and stay within the opposition for 20 years so as to gain experience. Third, Ghanoushi is accused by uh, Muru is accused of protecting religious extremists that is the jihadist Salafist movement. In spite of Muru's strong statement against Ghanoushi, no real dichotomy occurred inside another party. The liberal wing of another refused the idea of a technocratic government abiding by another's leadership decision. Some analysts argue that the liberal wing's silence can be justified by its inability to take important seats in the party and government. It is also note, noteworthy that the nature of relationship between the president of the party and his supporters has two sides, spiritual and pragmatic. It is also a relationship of submission and obedience since the leadership figures within the movement must perform the oath of allegiance to the head of party in order to make and throw the hierarchy of the party. Another movement felt that its reputation what affected, uh, was affected for a while. Most, most criticism revolved around, first, its poor economic and social performance. Second, its shaky security performance, which resulted in repetitive Salafist attacks on people and property, as well as attacks on Sufi sites and killing of Lutfi Naqad and Shukri Bel-Aid assassinations. Third, its uh, complicity with the Salafist movement through Ghanoushi's leaked video in October 2012. Fourth, its monopoly of the most important position in the government and attempts to control, to control the management of Tunisian administration through hundreds of nomination of officials from another in sensitive position in central and regional administration. Another movement has sought to expand the ruling coalition, but it fa faced the rejection of uh, prominent parties. The coalition, the coalition is limited to either marginal or parties from the old Troika, the bases of which are fragmented and no longer have a future in the next election. The opposition fears the indirect dominance of another movement on the independent electoral commission and its attempts to disable the project of the independence of the judiciary. Without these 
two variable transparent election cannot be ensured. Ghanoushi felt the danger of weak electoral potential of his party in the next election, so he started to intensify his reassuring media statements such as calling for, for the inclusion of the universality of human rights in the Constitution. Ghanoushi also expressed his movement's willingness to do away with, uh, with uh, the inclusion of a chapter of the criminalization of blasphemy and a chapter about the Supreme Islamic Council. Almost political class agreed on the non-validity of the draft constitution that had been prepared. There is a general request of the formation of a committee of experts to adjust the draft. This decline albeit change in Nahda's discourse and in Nahda's attempts to appear as the seeker of consensus, consensus is due to the movement's increased lack of experience, its inability to solve accumulated social and security problems in addition to the distant attitude its liberal and leftist lies to. In Nahda, felt it was facing the specter of economic bank, uh, bankruptcy, particularly in the light of investors' departure and the deterioration of tourism. As a result, another started looking for a consensus to share, to share the responsibilities for the government failure. The truth of the matter is that another did not portray during its reign the public image of an open and moderate party as it tried to highlight it during its electoral campaign on October 2011. It's, it is expected that another will get between 20 and 25 percent of voters in the next election. Thus, another becomes merely a party in the political equation, equation and not a K party. It is expected that the government, after the next election, will include another movement which represents the moderate political Islam and forces of moderation such as the Union for Tunisia, which included five liberals and leftist parties. The next government will probably get support from other small nationalist and leftist parties. Another movement actually observes what, it, uh, what is happening in Egypt, particularly the increased escalation in the interaction between the Muslim Brotherhood movement and the Salvation Front. The tie between the two parties appears, the have, uh, appears to have reached rupture, and uh, the failure of Egyptian experience may, may lead to the exclusion of any rapprochement between secularists and Islamists in the countries of the Arab Spring. This could open the doors of the unknown and affect the other Muslim Brotherhood experience.
Another movement believes that the crisis uh, that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt faces can uh, affect the future relationship between another and the secular opposition in Tunisia. Some researchers predict that the average age of political Islam cannot exceed five years. The question is whether the failure of political Islam will open the door the doors for the Salafist movements, or will, or will the liberals, the forces of, of moderation and some factions of moderate Islam be able to present an, 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 an adequate solution to make up for the failure of political Islam of the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, it seems very difficult for the Muslim Brotherhood to keep the same momentum of the revolution days in the next five years. This will bring about either internal, internal revisions or internal splits. The open liberal mainstream within the Muslim Brotherhood approaches the Turkish model because it is difficult for the Muslim Brotherhood movement to adopt the secular doctrine and is the case for the Justice and Development Party in, in Turkey. Regarding their standpoint vis-à-vis -vis the Palestinian issue, the Muslim Brotherhood influenced parties in Tunisia and, in, and Egypt will have a common position. This position does not differ radically for, from faith approach, asserting the recognition of two status through negotiation and possibly involving Hamas gradually in the negotiation process, especially that Hamas does not seem to be facing a rejection from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Overall, and despite the popularity that political Islam obtained in the countries of the Arab Spring, it faces a trust crisis for it not much trusted by the political elites and uh, an, an important part of public opinion which voted for it. This uh, imposes on uh, political Islam advocates ad the acceleration towards, uh, radical, towards a radical change of strategy, especially to match words with uh, deeds and abandon the close merge between religion and politics, and thank you. Thank you very much. That was a good picture of the relations between the two uh, tendencies. Uh, the next speaker is Dr. Harari of the uh, University of Tunis. Thank you, Mr. President. I will switch uh, to Arabic. I would وجه شكري وامتناني للجهات التي نظمت هذه الندوة وأخص بالذكر الدكتور محمد المطار والأستاذ عصام صليبة ومهندس هذه الندوة بامتياز الأستاذ نجيب العياشي الذين من دونهم لما كنا بينكم هذا الصباح كيفما فهمت ورقتي في سياق 
البرنامج العام فأنني أود أن أتبادل بعض الخواطر معكم في ما أستسمحكم في تسميته في الظرف التونسي إعادة التأسيس الدستوري في ظل حكم الإسلاميين وقد أستبق هذا التقديم بعناصر ربما تمكن السادة الحضور بأن يفهموا أكثر خصوصية الوضع التونسي يمكن أن أقدم بصفة عامة هذه الورقة متحدثا أو محدثكم عن الوضع العام في تونس على أننا نعيش على الأقل هكذا أراه بصفة شخصية نعيش وضع أمة سئمت أن يقدر لها وقررت أن تواجه قدرها بنفسها فالحديث عن البناء الدستوري أو التأسيس الدستوري في الظرف أو في الإطار التونسي حديث خاص وقد لا يمكن لنا أن نقيسه بسهولة مع التجارب الدستورية الأخرى في الدول التي يمكن أن نقارنها بتونس وأعني بالأساس دول شمال إفريقيا والمنطقة العربية لسبب بسيط وعميق في ذات الوقت لقدم التجربة الدستورية في تونس نحن اليوم في الولايات المتحدة الأمريكية في دولة دستورها يضرب به المثل على قدمه وعلى مرونته وبقائه ساريا أكثر من قرنين في الواقع هذا أمر مؤكد ولكن لما نتحدث عن قدم الظاهرة الدستورية ربما يحسن بنا أن نعود إلى فلاسفة الإغريق الذين إن عدنا إلى كتبهم نراهم يتحدثون عن دستور قرطاج ومؤسساتها وبرلمانها ونحن طبعا نتحدث عندها عن آلاف السنين لا بالقرون فقط ولو ذهبنا إلى فترة أقرب منا وأعني بذلك القرن التاسع عشر فإن البلاد التونسية في محيطها العربي الإسلامي كانت سباقة في أن وضعت أول الأمر أول أعلان حقوق عربي وكان عهد الأمان ونحن في منتصف القرن التاسع عشر بضع سنوات بعد أن كانت البلد الأول الذي الغرق في ذلك الوقت ونحن في النصف الأول من القرن التاسع عشر وكانت تونس أول بلد عربي سن دستورا بأتم معنى الكلمة كان ذلك سنة 1861 وهذا الإطار يعني هذا السبق الدستوري ترك للمدرسة الدستورية في تونس وأعني هنا المدرسة الفكرية والفلسفية تقدم يلتقي ويتقاطع مع مدرسة سياسية أعمق وهي الفكر الإصلاحي الذي أغلب رواده كانوا من مصر ومن تونس ولما نتحدث عن أدباءك محمد عبدو ورفاع رافع الطهطاوي من مصر لابد أن نتحدث عن خير الدين وعن ابن أبي الضياف وغيرهم في تونس وبالتالي هذا كله يجعلنا نتحدث عندما ننظر إلى التجربة الدستورية في تونس عن تجربة عميقة وعن وعي دستوري متأصل وعن تقدم من ناحية وضع النصوص الدستورية منذ القرن التاسع عشر في المحيط العربي الإسلامي وتواصل تونس هذا الوضع الريادي 
في مطلع القرن العشرين بتأسيس أول حزب سياسي بالمعنى الحديث للكلمة أول نقابة عمالية بالمعنى الحديث للكلمة إلى النصف القرن النصف الثاني من القرن العشرين لنرى أول منظمة دفاع أو الرابطة للدفاع عن حقوق الإنسان ولا زالت تونس تنفرد بأن لها وأنا في تناغم تام مع مقال الدكتور مطار منذ حين عن وضع المرأة في تونس بأن لا زالت الدولة الوحيدة التي لها مجلة تنظم الأسرة وتعطي حقوقاً لا مثيل لها إلى حد الآن في العالم العربي للمرأة من مساواة متقدمة على كل حال ووضعية تجعل من المعطى كما سأشرحه بعد حين المعطى الدستوري بين أيدي الإسلاميين اليوم معقد كثيرا وبالتالي لا حديث عن وصولية دستورية في تونس هنالك تأصل وهنالك ممارسة وهنالك تواصل على الرغم من الضرورة الإقرار بأن الخطاب الدستوري كان في واد والممارسة الدستورية خاصة الخمسين سنة الأخيرة كانت في واد آخر وكنا نعيش نوعا من السكيزوفرينيا الدستورية يعني وجود مدرسة دستورية عميقة وممارسة دستورية وتنكر للقواعد الدستورية مهين بقيمة هذه الأمة التي كنت أتحدث عنها لذلك تأتي الثورة إجابة عن ذلك كذلك بمعنى أن التونسيون الذين صاروا في الواقع صاروا لا كما يريد بعض الأطراف السياسية اليوم حتى يجيبوا عن مسألة من نحن علينا أن نعود إلى أصولنا هذا خطأ أولا في نظري سياسي وخطأ منهجي لأن من يثور يعرف نفسه جيدا لأن الثورة في الواقع هي أن نقول لمن يحكمنا نحن نعرف أنفسنا جيدا ولا نقبل بأن تحكمونا كما تحكمونا لأننا نحن أولئك الذين يتصورون أنفسهم مواطنون لا رعاية وهذا الموقف موقف اقتناع بمن نحن وليس أن نذهب حتى نريد ونكتب من نحن من جديد وبالتالي الثورة والمطلب الدستوري على الرغم من اختلاف بعض الرؤى اليوم في تونس أنا من الذين يعتبرون أنها لأنها ثورة لا بد من إعادة تأسيس دستوري جديد يعني نقصد بذلك إعادة كتابة العقد الاجتماعي الذي يربط الأطراف السياسية ببعضها البعض ونرجو أن هذا العقد الاجتماعي الجديد يكتب على خلفية تأمين الحريات إعادة تركيب السلطة بمعنى توازنها وثانياً نهائيا القطع مع منطق الراعي والرعية والبقاء في منطق المواطن والسلطة المسؤولة والنابعة منه والمعبرة عنه لذلك وربما بعض هذا التقديم الأولي أريد وفي رجع صدى لما قال الأستاذ علي العلاني وأنا أشاطره في تحليله المعطى الإضافي الذي يعطي خصوصية للمشهد التونسي اليوم على خلفية ما سميتموه في التقديم وأستسمحكم بأن أضعه فيما يخصني بين معقفين الربيع العربي كم أود أن يكون ربيعا ولكن علينا أن نبين أنه كذلك لنسكب عليه النعت في النهاية اليوم هو حراك عربي هو تغير 
عربي علينا أن نجعل منه ربيعا ولكم أن نضع أنه ربيع من قبل أن نرى ونختم هذا المسار ولكن خصوصية الوضع التونسي بعد الانتخابات التي أفرزتها الثورة يعني أكتوبر 2011 هو أن الحزب الإسلامي الغالب في الواقع لم يغلب كثيرا لماذا أقول لم يغلب كثيرا ومقياسي ليست الولايات المتحدة الأمريكية ولا أوروبا ومقياسي الدول العربية الأخرى فحركة النهضة التي اليوم تقود الثالوث الحاكم في تونس في الواقع لم تتحصل إلا على ثلث الأصوات 34% من الأصوات يعني من بين من ذهبوا للانتخابات الأغلبية الساحقة لم تنتخبهم وأن تحصلوا على 30% ونيف من الأصوات وما مكنهم من 40% من المقاعد هو في الواقع عنصرين اثنين أولا تشتت العرض السياسي ذهبنا الانتخابات فيها 1300 قائمة ب170 حزب وهذه طفرة ما بعد الثورة وأمر طبيعي وثانيا عدم توحد القوى التي سميت من قبل منذ حين أنها قوى يسرية وعلمانية وإن كان في هذا هناك تدقيق يستحق ولكنه يتجاوز الورقة وبالتالي اليوم لسنا في صورة لا إيران ولا غزة ولا السودان ولا حتى النتيجة المتكاملة للجناح الإسلامي في الانتخابات المصرية ما بين إخوان وحزب النور الذين مجتمعين تحصلوا على ما يتجاوز السبعين في المئة من الأصوات فالمعطى التونسي يبقى خاص ويجب أن نتعامل معه كذلك ومن باب منطلقات علمية صرفة أستدعيكم لبقية الورقة أن نبقى في المعطى التونسي دون البحث إلى حد الآن عن تعميم ولا على الأقل هذا شارد عن ذهني عن كل اعتبار معياري ولا اعتباره مقياس تام فهذه أمة قررت أن تواجه قدرها لنفسها وإن كان في ذلك دروس مستخلصة للبقية أرجو أن تكون دروسا إيجابية لما أنظر إلى كتابة الدستور اليوم ولأحوصل أمامكم التحليل لأنني سأشطره إلى نقطتين يمكن أن نحوصله على أن اليوم الدستور كتابة الدستور الجديد في تونس تنقسم بين تعثر المسار الإجرائي والصراع المظمين هنالك منذ أن انتخب المجلس التأسيسي هنالك مسار إجرائي من المفروض أن يفضي إلى كتابة الدستور جديد وهذا أصفه بالمسار المتعثر وسأحاول أن أشرح لكم أين التعثر وكيف وثانيا هنالك بمناسبة كتابة هذا الدستور هنالك صراع حقيقي صراع سياسي صراع إيديولوجي وفيما يخصني لا أتهاون في أن أصفه بصراع حضاري حول المضمين في الدستور التونسي الجديد كيف إذا المسار كان ولا زال متعثرا بما أن الدستور لم يكتب بعد أو لم ينتهي المجلس الوطني التأسيسي من كتابته في الواقع لما ذهب التونسيون 23 أكتوبر من 2011 لينتخبوا كان في ظنهم أنهم ينتخبون مجلسا لكتابة دستور في ظرف سنة وكان ذاك الالتزام وحصل لبس كبير لدى التونسيين ما بين ساسة وأهل رأي وصحافة حول ما هي القيمة القانونية للالتزام بسنة 
وقام نقاش كبير وصراع سياسي محتد حول هل أن المجلس التأسيسي كان ملزم قانونا بأن ينتهي في سنة أم كان عليه أن ينتهي في سنة وانقسم الرأي العام هنا كثيرا على خلفية موقع سياسي ومعارضة لحركة النهضة إلى غير ذلك على الأقل أسوق لكم بكل تواضع قراءتي للمسألة المجلس التأسيسي انتخب لكتابة دستور وهذا يعني أنه سلطة أصلية وسلطة لا تأتمر بأوامر أي سلطة كانت بما فيها السلطة الوقتية التي نادت لانتخابها وبالتالي أن وضع رئيس الجمهورية المؤقت في الأمر الذي نادى به الناخبين لينتخبوا مجلسا تأسيسي وقال في ظرف سنة هذا صحيح موجود في الأمر ولكن علاقة رئيس المؤقت السابق للانتخابات مع المجلس التأسيسي علاقة هرمية معكوسة فالآمر ليس له سلطة الأمر لسلطة تعلوه كثيرا وبالتالي أنا لست من أولئك الذين يقولون بأن التزام بانتهاء في السنة كان التزاما قانونيا بل كان التزاما أخلاقيا التقت الأحزاب الرئيسية 12 حزب التقوا و11 منهم أمضوا في 15 سبتمبر 2011 التزاما كتابيا معنويا على أنهم سينتهون من الفترة الانتقالية ومن كتابة الدستور في ظرف سنة وكان الالتزام علني أمام الصحافة أمام الرأي العام وذهبنا للانتخابات في ظل ذلك الالتزام يوم أول يوم التأم فيه المجلس التأسيسي ماذا فعل تنكر لهذا الالتزام وضع في أجندته أنه سلطة أصلية ولا ضابطة وقت لها ووقع هنا لبس ما بين شرعية المنتخب وعدم وضع مدة لختم عمله ويظنون أن الشرعية تفيد امتدادا لا متناهي وهو في الواقع تنكر لفكرة الشرعية لأن الشرعية هي وكالة ولا يمكن أن تكون الوكالة غير محدودة زمنا وبالتالي منذ أول خطوة وقع انفصام كبير لدى التونسيين ونكبة في ثقتهم في الهيكل الذي انتخبوه وهم مقتنعين بانتخابه ويعتبروه شرعي ولكنه اعتبروه من اليوم الأول ومن الامتحان الأول سقط في درس للقانون في درس الأخلاق بأنه لم يلتزم بوعده وكنا نظن أن بعد الثورة سنبني بناء جديدا لعلاقة الحاكم بالمحكوم بأن نثق في حاكمينا وهذه فرصة فوتناها المسار تعثر من ناحية أخرى أن المجلس التأسيسي لما انتخب قرر وهو حر في ذلك ولكننا اليوم نعاني نتيجة حريته هذه أن يبدأ بما يسمى في تونس بنظرية الورق البيضاء أي أن لا يعتمد أي شيء من قبل قدمت للمجلس التأسيسي يوم بدأ مشاريع دساتير كثيرة قدمتها أحزاب قدمتها جمعيات قدمتها نخب علمية قدمتها جامعات لم يستأنس بها بتاتا وقرر هكذا أن يدير الورقة وقال أبدأ من ورقة بيضاء طيب تبدأ من ورقة بيضاء ولكن يجب أن تبقى في الحدود التي 
التزمت بها اليوم نظرية الورقة البيضاء هي أحد أسباب بطء عمل المجلس التأسيسي لأنه في كل نقطة يجب أن يتوقف ويستأنس بآراء وأن ينفتح على دراسات والعمل قد أنجز من قبل ولم يكن يريد أن يقتنم هذه الفرصة هنالك من تساءل منذ حين في النقاش وقلت للأستاذ نجيب بأنني سأعين سأجيب عن هذا السؤال غضون تقديمي قيل هل هنالك مساعدة دولية في كتابة الدستور وأجبت نعم بسرعة وأنا جالس هنالك في الواقع ليست هنالك مساعدة مباشرة ولكن المجلس التأسيسي استمع إلى عديد الخبراء التونسيين والأجانب وهنالك من المنظمات الدولية من قدمت له العون لكي يقوم بذلك ولكن لست متأكد أن هذا الدعم وجد له رجع صدى في النص المكتوب فيحسن لديهم أن يقدموا الذين استشاروهم ولكن نرى نادرا أثر من يستشار في الورقة التي بين أيديهم وعادة ما يلتجأ للخبراء الأجانب لتعديل كفة الخبراء الوطنيين لأنهم عموما يعتبرون أنهم ينتمون إلى مدرسة فكرية وإيديولوجية معارضة لحركة النهضة وبالتالي هي ليست ذهاب لأخذ أحسن الأفكار وأحسن المنوال الدستوري بل هي تعديل وكسر لشوكة بعض الأصوات والأقلام التي تحرج منهم تحت قبة المجلس التأسيسي المسار تعثر وفي الواقع لأسباب عديدة سأكتفي برؤوس أقلام في إطارها هو أن المجلس التأسيسي اليوم هو الهيكل الذي يكتب الدستور ولكنه البرلمان وبالتالي هو يراقب الحكومة ويكتب القوانين وهذا العمل الثلاثي الأبعاد في الواقع لم يحترم فيه توازن معقول وبالتالي طغى كثيرا العمل التشريعي والعمل السياسي والنقاش الحاد خاصة وأن أعماله منقولة مباشرة للتلفزة بالنسبة لطبقة سياسية ناشئة تتصورون كم هذه التغطية التلفزية مهمة لهم حتى يبرزوا ولكن إرادتهم للبروز لا تكون دائما أفضل طريق لكتابة أحسن وأقصر دستور ممكن المشكل الآخر هو متعلق ب نهاية عمل المجلس التأسيسي من حيث الإجراءات لأن النظام الذي وضع يقتضي بأن الدستور في نهاية كتابته سيعرض على التصويت مرتين تصويت أول فصلا بفصل بأغلبية 50% زائد صوت وقراءة ثانية على كامل الدستور ويجب أن يحرز النص على أغلبية الثلثين ولما تعرفون أن النهضة ليست لها حتى الخمسين في المئة زائد واحد مع حلفائها تصل إلى خمسين في المئة زائد واحد هذا يعني أن كتابة الدستور تستدعي عمل توافقي وتوفيقي كبير إن كانت النية هو أن يحصل المشروع على الثلثين وهذا الصمام أمان التونسيين جميعهم يقول طبقتنا السياسية إن اتفقت على الأقل ثلثيها اتفق على نص دستوري لا يمكن أن يكون سيئا جدا وهذا يطمئننا ولكن الفرضية الموجودة في تنظيم المجلس التأسيسي هو أن إن كان الدستور القراءة الثانية لا تحصل على ثلثين سنذهب إلى الاستفتاء وعندها الشعب يقرر إن كان مشروع الدستور يقبل أم لا وهذه في الواقع ورقة يبقيها الحزب الأغلبي في جيبه 
لكي يقدر في نهاية المطاف إن كان مشروع الدستور النهائي يقبل به وبالتالي يزن في التصويت نحو الثلثين أو إن كان لا يرضيه تماما وعندها يستعمل الفيتو الذي لديه بما أن لديه الثلث المعطل وبالتالي سنذهب إلى الاستفتاء و لا يعرف أحد إن كانت اللا هي التي ستغلب على الاستفتاء ما هو الحل الإجرائي والدستوري والمؤسساتي لأن هنا نقاط استفهام عديدة رأيتم عموما بأن المسار الإجرائي غير محدد في زمنه غير محدد في طريقته والحزب الذي يجب أن يكون قاطرة كتابة الدستور لا يعرف بالضبط كيف يريد أن يختم هذه العملية هل يريدها بالتوافق وعندها عليه أن يتصرف بطريقة توافقية في المضمون أم يريدها إما أن تقبلوا برأيي أو أذهب بكم إلى الشعب وهو سيقرر وهذه الاهتزازات الثلاث على الأقل ويمكن أن أعدد أخرى ولكن سأبقي هذه تعطيكم الانتباع الأول أنه على المستوى الإجرائي هنالك تعثر كبير مما يفسر أن لا أحد يمكن أن يجزم متى سنتم من كتابة الدستور أنا جالس هنالك قبل أن أصعد إلى المنصة تصريح رئيس المجلس التأسيسي هذا المساء لأنه مساء الآن في تونس قال سننتهي من كتابة الدستور في شهر أفريل وبعد عشر دقائق منه أغلب النواب تكلموا الذين لا ينتمون إلى حزبه قالوا هذه خرافة لا يمكن أن نصل في أفريل ونتحدث عن شهر جويليا شهر أكتوبر إلى غير ذلك وهذه لعبة أرقت التونسيين اليوم بمتى سينتهي الدستور خاصة وأنهم يرون أن المجلس التأسيسي مكون من أناس يسعون كثيرا إلى الترفيع في جرايتهم إلى إضافة منح إلى منحهم والظرف الاقتصادي هو الذي تفضلت أليكسيس بأن بينته لكم منذ حين وبالتالي مرة أخرى المجلس التأسيسي يخلف الموعد الأخلاقي لأن المسألة في نظري بالأساس أخلاقية قبل أن تكون قانونية هذا بالنسبة إلى تعثر المسار بالنسبة للنقطة الثانية التي كنت اقترحت عليكم أن أتحدث في إطارها وهي مسألة صراع المضمين أي مضمون سنصع في الدستور الجديد خاصة وأن الأحزاب الموجودة في المجلس التأسيسي تحمل رؤى إيديولوجية واجتماعية متقابلة تماما وأحيانا متعارضة كيف يمكن أن نبني نصا لعقد اجتماعي بهذا الاختلاف العميق تفضل الأستاذ علي منذ حين بأن أشار إلى مواقف بعض قادة الحركات الإسلامية وخاصة راشد الغنوشي في مسألة الدستور وعموما يمكن أن نقول بأن الموقف هو أن عندما بدأنا في كتابة الدستور المطامح والأهداف التي رفعتها حركة النهضة لنفسها وكان هذا مضمنا في مشروع دستور كتبته الحركة نفسها كانت عالية جدا بمعنى الأسلمة البلاد والمؤسسات والتوجه نحو اعتماد الشريعة كمصدر من مصادر القانون التونسي إلى غير ذلك ومنذ ذلك التاريخ موقفها عموما موقفها عموما هو أن تتراجع وأن تعطي بعض الضمنات لبعض الأطراف وكأنها حزمة من التشدد تنوي الإبقاء على ما يمكنها أن تبقي عليه منها 
وكلما احتد الصراع الاجتماعي والاقتصادي وفشلت حكومتها كلما قدمت للرأي العام بعض التنازلات أول التنازلات كان بأن تخلت حركة النهضة على إدخال وإقحام الشريعة الإسلامية في الدستور التونسي الدستور التونسي الدستور 59 والدستور الجديد أرجو أن نقول 2013 من يدري هذا الدستور سيكون دستورا ناشزا في إطاره العربي الإسلامي لأنه الدستور الوحيد الذي سيبقى لا يقحم الشريعة كمصدر من مصادر التشريع كنا نفهم هذا في توجه علماني لائكي لدولة الاستقلال ولكن أن يحكم البلاد حزب إسلامي ولن يتمكن من وضعها هذا يعطيكم رجع صدى ثاني لما قلته وما سميته في أول الكلام الخصوصية التونسية ولكن حركة النهضة حركة إسلامية حتى وإن تراجعت عن إقحام فصل صريح أو لذلك ستحاول أسلمة النص والإجراءات والميكانيزمات بطرق مختلفة لذلك جاء الكلام وهذا يمكنني من التفاعل مع موقف الدكتور محمد المطار منذ حين حول توطئة الدستور ففي تونس التوطئة جزء من الدستور منذ سنة 56 وأن المحاكم تطبقها كمصدر مباشر منذ 2001 وجاء المجلس التأسيسي منذ أول جلساته وأقر بأن التوطئة جزء نافذ من الدستور ولكن التوطئة وبقية الفصول جاءت فيها مرجعية كثيرة لاعتماد الهوية العربية الإسلامية إلى تجريم المساس بالمقدسات إلى غير ذلك وأنا أتحدث الآن عن الأول نسخة لمشروع الدستور وكانت في شهر جويلي الفارس ما كان على المجتمع المدني في تونس أن ضغط على حركة النهضة وما جعلها تتراجع عن كثير المواقف من هذا الاتجاه فوقع التخلي عن إقحام الشريعة وقع التخلي وقد ذكره الأستاذ علي منذ حين عن تجريم المساس بالمقدسات ووقع التخلي كذلك عن مرجعيات غير مباشرة الورقة المكتوبة فيها التفاصيل ولكن السيد رئيس الجلسة يحملني على شيء من الاقتضاب سأبقى عند هذا الإطار العام ولكن ربما في النقاش نتعمق أكثر في ذلك هناك مسائل مفصلية أخرى حول المضامين مسألة طلب اجتماعي كبير طلب كل المجتمع المدني وتقريبا كل المجلس التأسيسي ما عدا حركة النهضة هو أن نضع إشارة واعترافا بمنظومة حقوق الإنسان الكونية وهذا كان موجود في الدستور التونسي التونس السابق وإلى حد الآن تتمسك حركة النهضة بعدم إدراج الإشارة إلى الكونية وسمعتم الأستاذ زارتمان الذي حظي بلقاء السيد راشد الغنوشي الذي يفسر له ذلك على أساس أن الإسلام كوني وبالتالي لا فائدة في هذا ذكر هذا في الواقع المسألة مسألة أكثر سياسية من كونها إيديولوجية اليوم يعتبر جزء كبير من المجتمع المدني في تونس أن في الإشارة وتضمين كونية حقوق الإنسان فيه ضمانة 
من تغير وبتبدل موقف القضاء وموقف الإدارة غدا وبالتالي هذا يعتبر ضمان على الذهاب في نحو دستور يقر بكونية حقوق الإنسان وهذا كان موجود في الدستور السابق التونسي وبالتالي نحن من زاوية القانون الدستوري نعتبر أنه لو وقع التخلي على ذلك لكان تراجعا وتقهقرا دستوريا وهذا لا نريده ولن نقبل به مسألة مسألة متعلقة بالمضامين كذلك وهي هامة وهي مسألة إدراج ذكر كون الدولة التونسية دولة مدنية بمعنى أنطاع سيكولي وعين المترجمين في هذا المعنى مدنية الدولة هذه قد ذكرت الآن واعتبرتها النهضة كاعتراف منها بأنها حزب مدني سياسي ولكن وقع إدراج الإشارة إلى مدنية الدولة كهدف كهدف دستوري في الواقع تونس دولة مدنية منذ سنة 56 وأن نأتي في الدستور ونضع منها هدف في الواقع ليس تأكيدا وليس حماية بل هو تراجع كذلك أريد أن أشير إلى مسألة أخرى أن كتابة الدستور اليوم في تونس هي كتابة لا فقط تتم داخل المجلس التأسيسي ولكن تتم كثيرا خارجه وأعطيكم مثال ويجعلني أعود إلى مسألة حقوق المرأة تونس في مجلة الأحوال الشخصية تمنع تعدد الزوجات وتمنع الطلاق الغير قضائي إلى غير ذلك وتضمن وتضمن المرأة حقوق قريبة جدا من المساواة التامة فأردنا بمناسبة هذا الدستور أن نضع المساواة التامة بين المرأة والرجل في أول صيغة من الدستور جاءت حركة النهضة بفكرة استغرب لها التونسيون قالوا لا نتحدث عن مساواة نتحدث عن التكامل المرأة مكمل للرجل وكان ذلك في الصيف الفارط وشمأز لها طيف كبير من الرأي العام وصادف هذا تاريخ ذكرى وضع مجلة الأحوال الشخصية يوم 13 أوت فنزل وكان شهر رمضان نزل الناس على غير عادتهم بآلاف عددهم بالآلاف في كل المدن ليلا بعد يعني إفطار رمضان ولم يتعود التونسيون أن ينزلوا للشارع لأغراض سياسية ليلا وكان عددهم مهول حتى أن الحركة النهضة تراجعت اليوم ووضعت وأنا معك في كل الأمثلة التي ذكرت أضيف فقط الفصل الخامس الذي يقول الأمر التالي المواطنون والمواطنات متساوون في الحقوق والواجبات وهذا فصل جميل جدا لأنه يقر مساواة تامة ولأنه لم يكتب من قبل من انتخبناهم كتبناه نحن لما نزلنا إلى الشارع وهذا هو الذي يقع في تونس في الواقع صراع حول دستور حول مضاميني حول إجراءاته ولكن خاصة أن الثورة لم تنتهي ولا زال التونسيون يقظون حتى تتم وتحصل ويتحصل على أهدافهم وكل ما نراه في الواقع هو نعيش فترة لافتة بكل المعاني هامة بكل المعاني ولكنها مؤسسة لمجتمع جديد لعقد اجتماعي جديد لمواطنة جديدة أعتذر للسيد الرئيس إن كنت قد أطلت وأنا على ذمتكم لمزيد من التحاور فيما بعد شكرا Thank you very much. Uh, we're rapidly losing our time for discussion, but our final speaker is Dr. Lhamri from the World Bank. Thank you, Dr. Zartman. Uh, 
You can take out the translating gizmos. I'm going to speak in English. <laughs> I'm going to be, uh, you know, um, the, uh, talking about the economy of Tunisia, you know, uh, is, is quite complicated uh, because um, uh, in the past, Tunisia was supposed to be a showcase in terms of uh, uh, economic uh, achievements uh, in the region, in the MENA region and even in Africa. So uh, why, you know, uh, if it was a showcase, uh, uh, did it end up uh, not right now in, in, in complete disarray, you know, in ruins? So it, I'm going to talk about the model that was chosen in the past and the legacy of that model. Uh, uh, basically, if we were to, you know, to put few words on that, the legacy, it produced, uh, the model produced economic and social inequalities coupled with uh, a governance geared towards political clientelism and socio-political exclusion. Okay. That was evident when the uh, revolution uh, was initiated by the peoples of people of Tunisia. So this past, the, the past economic progress in Tunisia with the World Bank, the IMF, the uh, European uh, institutions are considered to be, as I said, a showcase for the region. Um, it, it had an annual growth rate of 5% uh, each year, you know, from basically for about uh, uh, 10 years, from 97 to 2007. And it uh, placed Tunisia among the fastest growing countries in the region, you know. Um, so, uh, despite this growth, uh, the statistics confirm that uh, one, the main motivations for the uprising, uh, which were sparked in the country's in, uh, in interior uh, in, in December 10, was that many of the Tunisians were excluded from the benefits. Um, if we were to sum up, you know, uh, what happened, the growth model chosen by the regime produced widespread inequality and unemployment, especially among the young uh, and educated. Unemployment was estimated at 30 percent, 13 percent in 2010 overall, and uh, at that time, uh, approximately um, 500,000 people were out of work. In 2011, we have another number which, uh, that says that 750,000 people out of work. These are numbers from the National uh, Institute for Statistics in Tunisia. But the that unemployment rate was higher for younger people. Um, it was at 30 percent and, um, um, and higher for uh, uh, people uh, from the universities. It was at um, uh, 44 percent. Um, and these uh, are very, very uh, 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 important things to understand that uh, it was undermining the fabric of society ba basically by having people not working. So the lack of economic opportunity for all these people and related social inclusion meant that even positive development that were being hailed, such as improvement in health, education, and gender parity, uh, merely added to the general sense of frustration. Uh, this model made Tunisia actually a low-wage, low-value-added economy, unable to absorb an increase in skilled workers. As uh, Tunisia evolved, uh, more people went to school, more people got better skills and so on, but they couldn't find jobs. 
Okay, and this was compounded at that time by bad governance characterized by cronyism, chronic corruption, and anti-competitive practices which allowed a privileged few, privileged minority, within privileged regions to enjoy the lion's share of the benefits of growth and prosperity. I'm going to give you schematically uh, uh, how it, it, it came about. Uh, 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 a, despite the, the first reason, despite economic growth and more educated workforce, the economy did not create enough jobs, which eventually proved unsustainable. At around 30%, the youth unemployment rate in Tunisia was among the highest in the world, but was neglected on the ground that economic growth was strong. Second, there was a major deficit in job, in quality job creation. Uh, the labor force had grown from less than 3 million in 1994 to about 4 million in 2010, and between 2004 and 2007, 77,000 net new jobs were created only, the majority of which were very low-skilled jobs. Third, there was a mismatch between jobs being creating, created and the skills of the labor force. The unemployment rate for the college-educated rose from 14% in 2005, close to 22%, in 2009, <clears throat> when it fell when, uh, for those with no education during the same period. Fifth, uh, uh, I mean fourth, sorry, we had also a situation of low private investment. Uh, despite, you know, and then you may find that to be uh, contradictory with what uh, the results on the ground, despite growing profit rates, investment was on a, uh, a down uh, downward trend between 1990 and 2007. Private investment as percent of DG GDP declined yearly by 1.2%. And Tunisia was one of the three countries in the MENA region, the others were Algeria and Egypt, that witnessed a decline in investment as a percentage of GDP during that period. Uh, fifth, low wages. <coughs> Between uh, 2004 and 2007, real wages in Tunisia grew by a mere 2% uh, average annual growth, which is less than average annual productivity growth of close to 3% in the same period. Um, uh, sixth, uh, it's a country that experienced high immigration out of the country. Okay. It is estimated that the number of qualified Tunisians uh, workers in Europe doubled in the 1990s, a trend that continued in the, in the 2000s. High, high immigration historically relieved some of the labor market pressures in the country, but the global crisis of 2008 and 2010 made access to foreign jobs more difficult, further increasing internal social tensions. Um, and then we had also, um, as a se the seventh point, persistent gender inequality. Although, you know, my colleagues talked about uh, gender parity, there was on the ground gender inequality. Despite improved education and practically equal rights, at least on paper, women's employment participation rate in 2010 
was just 24.8% compared to 69.5% for men. While the, rate for, while the rate of unemployment for women in 2010 was 19% compared to 11% for men. The eighth point is that social protection gaps existed. For instance, the percentage of the unemployed receiving unemployment benefits was just 3% in 2008, the equivalent of only 13,000 people. So as you see, all these elements conjugated with other uh, factors that are still there have put Tunisia on a, on a, on a, uh, a down, downward trend in terms of uh, economic performance and uh, social stability. So uh, as we have, and you have, you have seen and you know, followed, Tunisia today, today in 2013, faces significant uh, socioeconomic development challenges. The economic and social progress that were achieved have not been sufficiently inclusive, resulting in the creation of economic inequalities and large regional and social disparities, both in terms of access to public services and investment and human development index. Moreover, the Tunisian economy is still based on exports, oriented industries with a limited degree of integration. Uh, um, the, the, the model that had been chosen did not allow Tunisia to have uh, 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 an increase in the what we call the backward linkages into its own economy. It was mostly forward linkages into the international market and low value added services. And this could not allow Tunisia to absorb new entrants in the job markets, and particularly the, uh, the youth. Um, after the revolution of, I would say, uh, the, you know, with, um, uh, with the revolution, what came, so the, the government that was put in place uh, attempted to put in place uh, 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 a plan of action. This was an interim plan of action financed uh, uh, by uh, international uh, financial institutions. I think it totaled $1.5 billion. It was supposed to... Uh, uh, provide resources, uh, increase social assistance, and provide resources for lagging regions where the needs for jobs and basic services was the, was the greatest. For its part, the, uh, the, 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 the Tunisian Central Bank also uh, helped, providing substantial amount of short-term loans to banks uh, to encourage lending and reduce interest rates to encourage borrowing for businesses that needed money. In spite of these efforts, in the 2011, the economy still contracted, uh, and uh, we've had a, a negative growth rate of 1.8%, and unemployment uh, increased uh, in 2011 to 19%. So uh, the economic situation uh, in 2013 is likely to remain in a recessive mode. Uh, it's difficult with uh, the projections that were made up to 2015-16 um, show a moderate recovery, but still uh, with uh, uh, problems in various areas of the economy uh, existing. And then social tension will remain due to high and increasing unemployment and difficult short-term economic prospects. Uh, 
so at a time when the Tunisians expect the revolution to improve their living standards. And that's very hard. People have to understand, uh, the Tunisians, and they, a lot of uh, economists have repeated this, you know, you cannot uh, uh, offer a solution right away. It's not like um, uh, using um, magic to do things. Uh, this takes a long term to, to realize. And the turnaround is going to take time. Um, uncertainty also about the new leadership, and uh, our colleagues have talked about that, uh, has uh, led many uh, domestic and foreign investors to adopt a wait-and-see approach. They don't know, you know, if things are going to get better. There are risks they have to deal with. Therefore, they are uh, not investing as much as they uh, uh, should be investing. So and, um, there is an issue also that is being now discussed. Uh, Tunisia um, has uh, uh, an external debt that is increasing uh, slowly, but it's increasing. I think it totals about $24 billion. And um, there should be some ways to limit it or some ways to help the Tunisian government deal with that situation. And uh, two days ago, three days ago, uh, uh, Tunisia's uh, credit rating was downgraded by Moody's. And before that, the S&P uh, also downgraded Tunisia's credit rating. And that does not arrange things to help the Tunisian government have access to the international uh, borrowing markets uh, uh, to get money. So uh, uh, if I, have, I have some uh, uh, indicators to give you. It's, you know, these are just indicators. Uh, they, they reflect the downward trend. They reflect the difficulties and so on. So um, basically, uh, the government is going to have uh, to deal with the fiscal deficit because of what it needs to do. It, uh, its outlays are going to be greater than its uh, revenues. And then also, uh, there is going to be uh, uh, a decrease in uh, revenues from exports because of the – not because that the Tunisian products are not competitive enough. It's because the European crisis – where the major markets of Tunisia are, um, are not absorbing those products. Um, so th there has been, you know, uh, um, uh, a very negative effect on, the, on Tunisia uh, because of the European uh, economic crisis. So uh, <clears throat> globally, if we were to sum up the future, uh, you know, 2013, I mean, the short term, 2013 to 2015, uh, Tunisia will continue to be affected by a decline in uh, uh, export of uh, goods, a decline in uh, uh, tourism revenue. And, and uh, I mean, this, as we know, the tourism sector in Tunisia was one of the main uh, revenue-creating uh, sector. So there'll be it's it's been declining, a decline in financial flows, um, official development assistance and FDI, and even the remittances from Tunisians abroad, an increase in public debt, an increase in the rate of inflation, a widening public deficit, and a chronic unemployment rate in the short and the medium term. So what are the challenges, you know, 
in the middle of all of this because on one side you have the political infighting trying to reach uh, a consensus to put a uh, 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 system in Tunisia that satisfies everybody but at the same time the government needs to work, needs to produce something to satisfy the Tunisian and that is the main challenge. Uh, given its past in the, the way uh, the economy was managed and then the way that the model ignored totally the poor Tunisians, uh, those that were unemployed, and there are a lot of them. Um, it would be interesting to see Tunisia develop a pro-poor growth model. And these are things that are new in the uh, literature of uh, economic development um, in the sense that uh, it's systems are not supposed to, from the beginning, you know, say we're going to develop a pro-poor. We're going to put on policies that may develop uh, trends of reducing poverty, reducing unemployment, and uh, uh, having uh, an economy that is balanced, but to see a pro-poor growth model, that is going to be uh, difficult. So, um, uh, we, I, I drafted some, some suggestions or, or, or basically on, 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 uh, on, on the basis of what I said. First of all, uh, uh, the, the Tunisians need to limit the external debt. That is a big uh, number, uh, 25 billion right now, which might increase it to 28 billion in two years. Here we, we, we look at uh, uh, various uh, uh, alternatives that have been used in the past. For instance, uh, uh, the international community can help Tunisia um, access to debt uh, forgiveness uh, mechanisms and um, maybe debt swaps and um, maybe open to the Tunisians uh, special export channels to generate export income. Um, and also, uh, if you have heard of the, uh, the STAR initiative, the Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative that was started by the United Nations, I think um, given that how the previous regime uh, and its cronies have taken money, I think it would be good to apply that to Tunisia so that a lot of that money can be returned to the, to the Tunisian people. Um, uh, we, Tunisia needs to diversify the, the structure of the economy by promoting investments and financing them and changing the attitude of banks, which are usually very risk-averse, to put uh, uh, financing for businesses that create jobs uh, with uh, high value added and uh, that call for also uh, uh, um, uh, educated people, and also that can uh, offer uh, uh, an increase in backward linkages into the economy, therefore increasing the, integ the integration with the, uh, with, uh, with the uh, Tunisian economy, and therefore reducing unemployment. Um, third, improving business climate and good governance while eradicating corruption practices. I think corruption, um, and we see it um, almost everywhere in the Arab world, is, is, is the fact of the day. I mean, th that has to be dealt with uh, effectively, and maybe the, even the new constitutions has, has to uh, put something in writing and, 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 and law 
to outlaw corruption and, and, um, and punish those that uh, uh, engage into it. And another objective is to curb drastically youth and graduate, uh, college graduate unemployment. Because right now, seven out of 10 unemployed are under 30 of age, and also uh, that, that create a lot of problems. And the second point here, or the sub-point, eliminate gender-based disparities in the job market, meaning that women are as, more, as qualified as men, and they should be given equal chances for jobs, you know, because they have families to support, they have careers to develop, and so on. The other point that I wanted to um, put forth, which is important for Tunisia to do, is reduce regional disparities where unemployment is persistent by investing into regions where economic activities were lacking. And these are the regions of the interior because as you may know, Tunisia's development uh, is mostly on the coast, on the regions that are close to the big cities. And because of the tourism industry that uh, 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 supported that type of development, you know, the, the interior of the country had not been developed adequately. Uh, for instance, the highest unemployment rate in 2011 was in the center west of the country. It was at 28.6%, okay, and 26.9% um, in the southwest and 17.3% in the northwest. And these are unemployment rates that are reflective, basically, of a total uh, absence of the government being aware that uh, they, these, these, these people need, need, need jobs, need economic activity. Um, and the, the last point that I'd like to uh, uh, f um, uh, stress is that the government, those in charge after uh, taking power, should implement social inclusion program, okay? And these should be targeted at the dispossessed and the poor. Because uh, as long as Tunisia does not take care of that fringe of the population, things might not uh, get better. There are also, uh, in the literature today, a lot of proposals for dealing with uh, unemployment, which is considered to be structural unemployment. That means that the system needs to change to promote employment. And uh, these are many, among them revising the investment code, revising the the way technology is uh, absorbed by the economy, promoting synergies between universities and industry, uh, 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 reviewing the uh, tax code, uh, uh, reducing pressure on labor cost for uh, firms, uh, revising the employment labor code, and uh, also encouraging support for uh, uh, the creation of, an, an, um, of entrepreneurship as a measure to deal with expanding the productive sector at one, at, on one side, and then also helping the, the young people, the, the, the engineers, the doctors, uh, the technicians, create their own companies. And that would help uh, a great deal in reducing unemployment and opening jobs for other Tunisians. I think uh, it's very difficult to go over everything. I am going to stop here. The conclusion, basically, Tunisia in, in today needs a lot of help from the uh, international community, mostly uh, reviewing the debt situation. 
and also and I and I and, and I stress the um, implementation of the STAR initiative, as I said, the Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative, that should uh, uh, give Tunisia an assurance that the international community is with them and that they will help them to reach a, a better uh, plateau of economic growth. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was uh, succinct and, uh, and important, I think. Uh, we do have a little time for questions. I'll take a batch of questions and then go down the panel. So, uh, uh, Eric? Uh, if the uh, people with mics could uh, jump lively, uh, we can move on. If not, if you don't see one, just stand up and yell. This, my question, Eric Goldstein, Human Rights Watch. My question is for Dr. Alhamri about the economy. Did the World Bank and economists get Tunisia wrong all these years uh, in describing it as a model country, a middle-class country, a place where things worked? I, I myself visited the country year after year and bought that. I believed it. And now all we hear about is the huge unemployment numbers, unemployment numbers, uh, the poor investment uh, climate, and so forth. Um, did, did the economists get it wrong? And if so, was it bad data? Was it because it was essentially a closed country where it was not possible to go in and do good research? Or was this model accurate? And then suddenly in 2010 and 2011, things headed south. Thanks. Uh, up here in the aisle. Uh, hi. Salsal uh, Mahjoub from the Tunisian American Young Professionals. Um, I have two questions. One for my uh, eminent professor, Ghazi uh, Ghraidi. Um, I'm going to ask it in Arabic. كيف ترون دور المجتمع المدني في سياقة العقد الاجتماعي في في سياقة عقد اجتماعي جديد بين القوى السياسية في تونس؟ Excuse me, uh, since we don't have a translator working at the moment, why don't you uh, okay, uh, sure. ask oh. it in English and we'll get it as we... English? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Professor, how do you see um, the role of civil society in the, in the um, shaping of the social contract that you mentioned earlier between the different political uh, forces uh, in Tunisia today? And what is, the, what, is the, what is the weight of civil society today in the constitution-making process? Uh, for Professor uh, Hamri... Um, how do you suggest to promote investments in such an unstable uh, security environment? Uh, people are reluctant to invest because it's not stable, because yeah. there are security threats. How do you see we can do that from here? Okay, another question. Um, all the way in the back? I don't know. The back seems to be carrying strong. Uh, I'd just like a question to anyone up there. Uh, we always hear about the Salafist as though it's just this... Uh, unfaced, unorganized uh, movement, and there's never any identification of any kind of organization within Tunisia, of any individuals running it. And so I'm just asking, is there any organization, any individuals, any discipline within the movement? Okay, and there's a question uh, back in the corner. Uh, yeah, my question is uh, Keep regarding question, the World please. Bank uh, and the monetary policy of Tunisia. What currency does Tunisia have right now? And what is the amount of the GDP? Okay, thanks. Uh, Gordon? Uh, I have a question similar to the one that's asked, and that is, 
the organization or non-organization of the liberal secularists. Uh, some, I'd like somebody to address that. Okay. And uh, last here up front in the third row. Uh, Please use the microphone. Oh, um, perhaps this could be answered by, um, by um, Professor Alani, but I wondered if you could give a um, spectrum of the differing perspectives across Tunisian society regarding the recent appointment of Ali Larayev as Jibril's replacement. Front row. Which one is it? I called the front row. Uh, Gary Kleiman, two questions on the economy quickly. Uh, after uh, deferring for several years, uh, right after the revolution, will the government indeed need a rescue from the IMF as it is negotiating? And secondarily, how bad is the banking system? We know that non-performing loans were a big problem at about 20% of the portfolio. Has the situation improved at all uh, with uh, World Bank operations in particular on the ground? There are lots of people waiting for a while. Over in the corner, on the, the lady over there. Regarding the constitution uh, draft uh, process, uh, you've described a very uh, black picture. Uh, what would be, according to you, the outcome and uh, the next step, and what would be the appropriate measure uh, from the international community? Second one, uh, for um, the, the economical support from the international organization, um, to strengthen uh, the inclusing, inclusive growth, um, to uh, decrease disparity, and uh, to strengthen the corporate governance, what would be uh, the most appropriate measures from the international community as well? Thank you. Okay. I think that does it. Uh, you ready to answer all the economic problems? <laughs> Resolve them now and answer questions, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, first question is, uh, I mean, uh, did the World Bank uh, get it wrong? Okay. I'm not here as a, uh, you know, speaker for the World Bank or defending them. The World Bank has surely a, a part in uh, doing things wrong around the world, and they do recognize it. They do their own self-evaluation, uh, auditing, and they look at the effectiveness of their uh, actions and uh, uh, development assistance. In the case of Tunisia, uh, you know, in the past, uh, uh, Tunisia was following uh, a model that was hailed as, as being one of the models that would uh, give them high uh, uh, economic performance given that they were promoting exports. At that, that time, we had a lot of export promoting, you know, import substituting models that were proving that uh, 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 those were good for, for the countries. So basically, uh, if we link what Tunisia did and, and then the, the models that were proposed, Actually, the, the, the World Bank proposes a course of action through the, uh, uh, what they call the country assistance strategy that they establish with the government. They look at the priorities and they say, well, we, would you want us to help you here and, and so on and so forth. 
um, and uh, Tunisia had been a, at that time uh, um, a very stable uh, country, you know, although under dictatorship, seemed to be a uh, um, uh, typical country uh, where the World Bank or, or they could showcase uh, results of policies that were export-oriented and, and the like. So um, um, the economists that uh, worked on it um, um, uh, probably used the right statistics, the right numbers, and then that's what they found on the, on the ground. So, um, but, um, uh, and then this is uh, a big, big, um, big thing, is they have to recognize the mistakes they made I mean, it's not only Tunisia. I mean, uh, Egypt also was uh, was considered to be on the right track, and Morocco is also being considered on the right. Track. But the World Bank, when it comes to uh, social policies, have always had difficulties uh, promoting uh, uh, social policies that produced equality, uh, uh, equal access to uh, uh, economic growth or uh, equal access to wealth, equal access to services and so on. Those uh, uh, policies, social policies or social inclusion policies were the fact of the governments themselves. They did them. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a bit of both. You know, we can blame the Tunisian government and we can blame also the World Bank for having uh, done that, but you know, as you know, the World Bank has always put down conditionalities. You know, we want you to do A, and then we give you one, and so on and so forth. And um, and uh, Tunisia, being one of those countries that uh, had a very nice portfolio for the World Bank, in some situations, those conditions were not as well, you know, uh, uh, used. So. I would say, um, yeah, we, we did get it wrong. I think um, it's time to amend and, and it's time to help the government put in place mechanisms that would ensure in the future uh, that these things don't happen, that uh, the economy will grow on a, on a sure footing, that uh, all the country's resources are being used. Um, there is a lady who told me about the promotion of investment. How do we promote investment? You know, and the, given the uh, the risk, you know, uh, resulting from the uh, likely insecurity in the country, I think uh, the uh, the fact that the uh, the World Bank has already put a package in place of five hundred uh, million dollars uh, to deal with governance to deal with revamping the banking system, reforming, uh, uh, helping the, uh, the government reform the economy or uh, address uh, the sectors that are uh, not in sync with what uh, they would like to do. I think if uh, these institutions are going to reform and uh, establish, in one sense, a sense of security for the investors, and given that uh, Tunisia has a lot to offer, even today, has a lot to offer, I think investment is going to come back, provided there is a serious option taken in order to provide that uh, uh, investment assistance uh, within the country and with other, uh, from outside the country. Uh, there was a, a lady told me about the, um, 
the GDP. The, uh, the, the currency of Tunisia is the Tunisian dinar, um, and it's uh, actually what a 1.4 Tunisian dinar to a dollar, uh, 1.5. Sorry, and uh, the the nominal GDP for uh, for uh, 2012 has been estimated as being 70 billion uh, Tunisian dinars, or uh, in dollars, um, 44 billion uh, dollars. Excuse me? The population is... You can look that up. 10.8 million. Okay? Okay. Sorry. Uh, There's someone who asked about the uh, IMF uh, package. Yes, yes. Uh, IMF has published uh, what they call uh, uh, review uh, reports according to their uh, mandate uh, under Article 4, in which they have determined uh, basically what uh, Tunisia needs to do. But, you know, IMF uh, pursues a very mechanist approach. They look at the figures and they want to balance everything out. So they're going to ask the Tunisians to, uh, uh, given you know, what is happening, um, deal with the fiscal deficit, reduce the debt, you know, and that's going to be very difficult for Tunisia to do. Because if you want to reduce the fiscal deficit, then you're going to cut off a lot of spending, you know, that is needed by Tunisians, especially in view of salaries, social programs, supporting subsidies, and the like. So I think there's got to be very tight negotiations. I don't know. I mean, it's ongoing. The, the, the plan has not come out. Okay? The evaluation report uh, mentions a lot of imbalances, and then the IMF has to, and once has come up with something original for a country that has gone through a very disruptive event, which is the revolution. So uh, I cannot give you an answer if the IMF is going to impose the drastic measures to bring mechanistically the Tunisian economy in world or not. So I'm saying that Tunisia should be looked in, uh, through another prism uh, that it needs more help. So the, if the, uh, the IMF can do that, um, uh, it's, it's better. Um, Someone asked uh, a question about the uh, banking sector. You too. Oh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, as uh, we bring more, uh, uh, the reforms would bring more uh, uh, discipline in the banking sector. Non-performing loans, uh, you know, um, it's, it's a big issue. Uh, the question is now uh, we have to uh, find, a, find a way to absorb them. And we have to find we have to find a way of uh, push putting the bank out there to give long-term loans that they, they refused to do in the past for worthwhile um, economic and productive uh, activities, which could have created jobs. So the banking sector needs some reforms in the sense that you know uh, I am not really sure, but what made those loan non-performing? Were these legitimate loans? Were these loans given to people that did not deserve them? And so on and so forth. So we need to, to do more uh, into that area. Um, is there any other question that I didn't answer here? Okay. 
Thank you. Two more things to add on the economy. First of all, as you know, Eric, the Ben Ali regime was not a model of economic uh, uh, performance. Every time some businessman did well, he was taken over. The, the business was taken over by the Ben Ali family. And that doesn't help competition. Second of all, it's important to look at the consequences of success. Tunisia was known for its social policy in regard to education, a leader in the Arab world. So it succeeded very much in that uh, area, but then it had plenty of graduates uh, for which it had no jobs. So the success then posed a challenge that was, was beyond its means. Um, Dr. Lani on uh, the Salafis. Thank you. Excuse me to speak in Arabic because I, and I, uh, I am uh, feel to uh, speak more comfortable in Arabic. But there is the translation. بخصوص السلفية. يعني السلفية الحالية في في التي نجدها هي غير السلفية التي نعرفها في التاريخ. السلفية في التاريخ الإسلامي تعني تيار غير سياسي أبوليتيك السلفية الجديدة the new salafism هي تشبه عندكم new conservatism السلفية الجديدة ظهرت مع حرب أفغانستان وأصبحت مسيسة بوليتيزي السلفية الجديدة والدليل على أنها عفوا أنها سلفية مسيسة نجدها الآن ممثلة في البرلمان المصري بحوالي ربع المقاعد في البرلمان وهناك أحزاب سلفية أخرى ستشارك في الانتخابات سواء في تونس أو في البلدان العرب سبرينغ الأخرى السلفية الجديدة التي ظهرت بعد حرب أفغانستان واللي هي موجودة الآن وظهرت بشكل مفاجئ في تونس وفي بلدان أخرى هي تعبر عن تهميش اقتصادي وتهميش سياسي يعني وجود الاستبداد وغياب الديمقراطية وجعلت هذا يعني هذا التهميش الاقتصادي والتهميش السياسي جعل العديد من الطبقات يهربون إلى الهوية ففي رأيي إذا نجحت أو تحسنت المؤشرات الاقتصادية سيكون ذلك أحد العناصر لتقليص تأثير السلفية بالإضافة إلى طبعا عناصر أخرى تقليص السلفية لا يرتبط فقط بتحسن المؤشرات الاقتصادية يرتبط أيضا بعناصر أخرى لها بعد دولي من بينها المساعدة على تحقيق حل القضايا العادلة وفي مقدمتها قضية الشعب الفلسطيني وأعتقد لكي أختم الحديث في هذا العنصر أقول أن مقاومة الإرهاب أو مقاومة التيارات المتشددة دينيا في رأيي تستوجب خارطة طريق تتجاوز حدود الدول الوطنية أو المناطق الإقليمية فخارطة الطريق يحبذا أن تكون على غرار خطة مارشال خارطة الطريق لمقاومة الإرهاب وهذا يعني يكون له مستويين أن توفر خارطة الطريق التنمية للمناطق المهمشة ثم الجانب الثاني أن توفر خارطة الطريق أو أن تساعد على حل القضايا العادلة فقط أردت أن أختم في الجانب الاقتصادي لو تسمح لي 
في من بين المشاكل التي جعلت الاقتصاد التونسي وان كنت انا مؤرخ ولست يعني اقتصادي ولكن هناك مؤشرات واضحه بالنسبه التي يمكن ان نفسر بها بعض الصعوبات الاقتصاديه هو ان الاحزاب السياسيه أخذ مثلا حركة النهضة في برنامجها الانتخابي الذي نجحت بفضله في انتخابات أكتوبر 2011 ذكرت أنها ستشغل 400 ألف مواطن في خلال أربع سنوات وأول ما قدم السيد حمد الجبالي حكومته في لكي تنال ثقة المجلس التأسيسي ذكر أن الميزانية التي سيعتمدها تقوم على تحقيق مئة ألف موطن شغل من ليبيا نتيجة العمالة في ليبيا إذا فهذا لم يتحقق والذي لامه اللوم الذي وقع لهذه الحكومة أنها وضعت يعني توقعات غير يعني مضمونة من الناحية الاقتصادية وشكرا السلفيزم هي للكوفرنمون عريض اسمح لي بالنسبة للمنظمات السلفية المنظمات السلفية هذه ليست مسألة غامضة لماذا؟ المنظمات السلفية الجديدة أنا أتحدث عن النيو سلفيزم لا أتحدث عن السلفيزم القديم الذي لا يعني الذي يرفض التسيس أو يعني غير متسيس التيارات السلفية الجديدة واستعدادها للتسيس وبدايتها بداية التسيس عندها هذا جاء قبل الربيع العربي كما ذكرت من أفغانستان ثم بعد ذلك مع القاعدة ثم بعد ذلك بعد العرب سبرينغ أصبحت لهذه التيارات السلفية أطماع وطموحات للعمل السياسي لماذا؟ لأن هذه التيارات أولا أصبحت تستعمل الدين كما تريد مثلا الفتاوي الفتاوي معنى interpretation of religion الفتاوي في يعني اصبحت تجيز وتسبح للتيارات السلفيه بالعمل السياسي مثلها مثل الاحزاب العلمانيه الاخرى ولكن المشكل هو ان هذه الاحزاب السلفيه تنتقد الاحزاب العلمانيه لانها تؤمن بالديمقراطية التي هي نظام بشري وتطالب بأن تكون كل الأحزاب تؤمن بتطبيق الشريعة الإسلامية ولها معنى فكرة خاصة حول الشريعة وفي رأي السلفية سواء في مصر أو في تونس أنا عندي مقال كبير سينشر عن قريب مقارنة بين السلفية في تونس ومصر إذا السلفية الآن في رأيي سواء في تونس أو في مصر هي تواجه تحدي كبير لماذا؟ لأن هذه التيارات السلفية تركز خطابها على قضية الهوية وقضية الهوية بمرور الوقت عندما أصبح الآن مثلا النهضة في الحكم والسلفيون البعض السلفيين حلفائهم النتيجة أعطت أن قضية الهوية لا يمكن أن توفر الشغل وأن توفر الرفاهة القضية الهوية هي قضية ثقافية يمكن أن تكون هامة ولكن لا يمكن أن يعطى لها حجم أكبر وبالتالي لا أرى مستقبلا للتيارات السلفية لماذا؟ لأن هذه التيارات يمكن أن 
يعني عندما تتحسن الظروف الاقتصادية وعندما تتحسن أيضا الحريات في بلدان الربيع العربي فهذه التيارة السلفية سوف لن تجد من يسمعها كثيرا سيبقى جمهورها محدودا وأعتقد أن هناك تضخيم من طرف وسائل الأعلام لهؤلاء السلفيين والجهاديين لماذا؟ لأنه في تقديري الخاص أن التيارة السلفية سواء كانت الجهادية أو غيرها جزء كبير منها مخترق من بعض المخابرات وهي مخابرات عديدة سواء كانت مخابرات أوروبية أمريكية أو عربية وبالتالي أرى أن تيارات السلفية يمكن أن ينقص أو يعني تتقلص ربما مخاطرها أو ستتقلص مخاطرها بمجرد أن تتحسن الظروف وأعتقد أن في تونس رغم كل المشاكل التي تحدثنا عنها أنا متفائل بأن في تونس الموديل النموذج سينجح لأن ما أراه الآن في وأنا أعيش ضمن الشعب التونسي أنهم أصبحوا يأخذون مسافة كبيرة من التيارات المتطرفة سواء كانت يمينية أو يسارية السؤال الأخير حول حكومة السيد العريض أعتقد أن هذه الحكومة بالنسبة إلى تونس التحوير الحكومي أصبح لا يهم المواطن كثيرا لماذا؟ لأن حكومة السيد العريض سبقتها حكومة السيد جبالي عندما أراد أن يقوم بتعديل وزاري وهذا التعديل الوزاري استغرق سبعة أشهر ولم يصل السيد جبالي إلى يعني حكومة جديدة وكأن هذا التونسيون يقولون هذا التعديل الوزاري أصبح يشبه المسلسل المكسيكي أو مسلسل دالاس عندكم ولهذا لا أرى أن قضية السيد علي العريض أو حكومة السيد علي العريض ربما ستتكون هي ستتكون في نهاية هذا الأسبوع لأن نهاية المدة التي منحت لها ستكون هي نهاية هذا الأسبوع ولكن السيد علي العريض استجاب تقريبا لكل الشروط التي كان طرحها السيد حمد الجبالي المواطن أو الشعب التونسي أو الجمهور التونسي يتساءل إذا استجاب السيد علي العريض إلى كل شروط الأحزاب فلماذا وقعت إقالة حكومة أجبالي وبالتالي الآن التونسيون ربما ينتظرون الانتخابات لكي يصوتوا للأحزاب الوسطية سيبقى الإسلام السياسي المعتدل موجود في الحكم في تونس كما ذكرت في مداخلتي بنسبة 20-25% لكن الشكل القادم للحكومة التونسية على ما أتصوره ستكون حكومة موزايك فيها الإسلام السياسي المعتدل وفيها القوى الوسطية والليبرالية وربما ستكون نموذج يعني يساعد إخواننا المصريين وفي بلدان الربيع العربي على أن يستوحي إنسبايرد من هذه التجربة وشكرا I don't want to weigh in at length because I'm conscious that we've gone way over our time already and, and probably people are hungry but um, uh, just to, to very to very quickly answer your question, though, and, and then the follow-up on secularists, to me it seems like one of the major policy challenges with dealing with Salafists is that there are many people who claim to speak on behalf of Salafists, and obviously the term is extremely you know, sort of large and, and covers a wide spectrum of beliefs and activities, but there maybe isn't a single figure who can claim to speak on behalf of the entire Salafist community. And I think to some degree, although you know, the two aren't really applicable to each other, but to some degree one could say the same thing about the secular liberal sphere in Tunisian politics. There are a lot of individual actors who are advocating on behalf of a secular ideology or a, or a leftist ideology, 
but there maybe isn't a single figure who can claim to speak on behalf of the entire sort of vision that they represent. So I hope that that helps uh, clarify. سأكون مقتضبا لأنني الحاجز بينكم وبين غدائكم بعد حين في الواقع تلقيت سؤالين اثنين أساسيين وسأتفاعل مع سؤال ثالث في نهاية الجواب أولا أحيي سوسا على جوابها على سؤالها عفوا وتتساءل عن أهمية ودور المجتمع المدني التقديم لم يسمح لي بأن أتعمق رغم أنني فت الوقت اليوم الوضع في تونس الاجتماعي والسياسي يقوم على توازن فريد لدينا السلطة السياسية وما يزن وما يقوم بالتوازن بينها ليست المعارضة كما يجب أن يكون في دولة عادية الذي يقوم بهذا التوازن هو المجتمع المدني فتونس هيبت المجتمع المدني نقطة نعود إلى السطر وسأضرب لك مثالين سريعين ويمكن أن نطول ويجب البحث في هذا في هذه الخصوصية هو مثلا هناك مطلب رفعه المجتمع المدني وهو غير معقول بكل منظار ديمقراطي هما أنهم جاءوا للحكومة السابقة وهي حكومة مؤسسة على أغلبية في البرلمان وقالوا لها يجب أن تحيدي وزارات السيادة حيادية وزارات السيادة هذا مفهوم لا معنى له لسلطة لها الأغلبية وأخذ هذا المطلب بأن ننزع وزارة الداخلية وزارة الدفاع وزارة الخارجية وزارة المالية من يد الحزب الحاكم وهذا غير معقول بالمرجعية الديمقراطية العادية وهذا المطلب رفعته أولا رفعه المجتمع المدني بقوة ثم التحقت بعض الأحزاب واليوم أصبح مفروغ منه والنهضة حاولت وتلكأت إلى آخر وقت ولكن أفضت منذ ثلاث أيام أن قبلت بذلك على مضض وستحاول أن تناور من خلال ذلك ولكن هذا المبدأ الغير معقول إلا لو كنا في الإطار والمناخ التونسي نريد أن نؤمن الذهاب إلى انتخابات نزيها حقا وهذا مطلب رفعه المجتمع المدني لما وهذا قلت أن أعرج لما نسمع المتدخلين عموما حول الوضع الاقتصادي حول السلفيين هذا مهم ولكن أظن أن هنالك عدم نظرة واقعية لما يقع في تونس السلفيون موجودون ولكنهم هامشيون وأتكلم تحت رقابة أناس مختصون وخاصة الأستاذ علي هو مظهر هامشي بضع آلاف أنا أستغرب في كيف لا نقف عند مثلا عندما قتل زعيم سياسي نزل مليون واربعمائة ألف تونسي من أصل عشر ملايين يعني تونسي من عشرة نزلوا إلى الشارع وهذا صحوة اجتماعية وصحوة سياسية لافت وبقدر ما يجب أن نهتم بهذه المظاهر لأنها مهددة للأمن إلى غير ذلك ولكن يجب أن نفهم أن اليوم هناك إعادة بناء لمجتمع جديد ولوضع سياسي جديد وسأتي هكذا مجيبا عن السؤال أنا قدمت وصف موضوعي إن رأيته شيئا ما مسود فهذا الواقع ولكن أنا لست متشائم وعندما إن كان الانتباع العام من ورقتي أن التونسيون في الواقع فقدوا ثقتهم في طبقتهم السياسية ففي فمي هذا أمر أستبشر به لأننا نبني لتصور جديد يعني أن ليست هنالك هالة على رأس السياسيين بتاتا لا الأمس ولا غدا وهذا أمر إيجابي لكي 
تكون العلاقة مجددا هي علاقة يسوسها أولا القانون والرقابة وأن الذين يحكمون فينا يحكمون بمقتضى إرادتنا وبحدود إرادتنا نحن وهذا كله إيجابي أنا لما أخذ القهوة أو أشتري جريدة النادل أو الذي يبيع الجريدة يقول لي إلى متى هم جالسون في المجلس التأسيسي ماذا فعلوا في الدستور هذا كله أمر جديد نولد الآن أو تولد علاقة جديدة وهذا بقدر أهمية المظاهر السلفية وأفهم أنه من, من, من منطلق الولايات المتحدة الأمريكية يكون هذا أهمية نظرا للوضع الإقليمي ولكن يجب أن نفهم أن في تونس وفي بلدان عربية أخرى يقع شيء جديد جدا نضع قدما في أرض لم تطأها أرض قدم عربية من قبل أننا اليوم نتعامل مع الساسة بطريقة أخرى ونفرض عليهم إرادتنا وينصعون رغم تلكئهم كل هذا مهم جدا ونحن في مفترق تاريخي كبير وبالتالي لا أعتبر أن الوصف الذي وصفته وإن كان فيه نقائص وإجراءات سيئة ولكن أنا أعتبر أننا نعيش طفرة تاريخية هامة ومفصلية من كل النواحي سألتني ما العمل بالنسبة لهم لكي يكتبوا أفضل دستور هم يمثلون الشعب باختلافه بنقائسه بتلونه وهذا شيء جميل ولكن لا يعرفون كتابة الدساتير لأنها علم بذاته أن يعبروا على إرادة الشعب وأن يتركوا أهل المعرفة يعينهم في ذلك وقد قبلوا على مذذ مؤخرا بأن يضعوا لجنة خبراء إلى جانب المجلس التأسيسي كي تعينهم وأظن أن هذا بداية الخلاص لهم ولنا أن يقبلوا بأن الكتابة ليست من اختصاصهم ولنا لأن الدستور يكون أفضل لما يكتب من قبل العارفين وإن عبروا عن إرادة المنتخبين من قبل الشعب وبالتالي نظرتي إيجابية وتفائل متفائل إلى أبعد حد بالنسبة لمستقبل تونس